Gig Gab, the Working Musicians Podcast, episode number 98 for Wednesday, January 18th, 2017. Greetings, folks, and welcome to Gab, the podcast by, for, and about working musicians here, a working musician myself in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Working musician myself in Los Gatos, California. It's Paul Kent. How goes it, Mr. Kent? Goes good, man. You were just on vacation. How'd you do? Uh, We did really well. Yeah, we, uh, Lisa and I went down to Mexico. We have, uh, so uh, the band Fish is a band that both Lisa and I discovered together. We separately before we met and as kids uh, both really enjoyed uh, and still enjoy seeing live music. And so to be able to find this band that we both really liked um, when we met uh, was fantastic. It, it, you know, it was, it was something we could both sort of explore together and, and all of that. And since then has become a um, really kind of the, the, the impetus for, um, some, you know, the various couples getaways that we've, we've tried to squeeze in over the years as we've been raising kids and all that kind of thing. So, so that's what this weekend was, was, um, a, a weekend down in Mexico fish played, uh, on the beach three nights. And we spent three nights on the beach watching fish and three days on the beach, uh, sitting in lounge chairs and drinking cocktails and having fun. So sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's is um, they, this is the second year they did it. And, uh, about three songs into the first show, uh, last year, Trey Anastasio went up to the mic and said, well, this doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that really summed it up. Um, but yeah, the shows this year were, were fantastic. And, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of concerts, uh, recently. I mean, obviously these three, and then I, I wound up uh, having the opportunity to see Sting out in Vegas when I was there for CES. And I, I, I have a couple of, I have a ton of observations, but the other night watching fish, um, they mix their sound uh, in in stereo, right? Uh, which is which I think is great. I mean, it in in the right venue. And there's there were only what maybe five or six thousand people at this thing in Mexico, so pretty small um, by concert standards. Um, and and we always made sure to get uh, you know a spot. It was all just general admission on the beach, literally stand, standing in the sand watching a band. This is not a bad thing. Um, but we made sure to be in the middle because I, you know, I like we like to hear the the stereo sound, especially with the keyboard uh, organ. You know, mic'd the right way sounds fantastic when it's kind of swirling between two uh, two sets of speakers. But um, it, I got to thinking about sound, and it's specifically about monitor mix. There was one point where I I caught myself, and I'm sure I do this all the time, but I caught myself sort of turning my head. So that I was, my ears were not getting the sound at exactly the same time. I mean, I realize it's a very slight difference to turn your ear, um, but I was able to hear the separation in harmonies better as I turned my head. And it got me to thinking, like, should I be doing something about this on stage? So I'm going to experiment because our mixer lets us do this of adding some delay to one monitor like basically, you know, giving our monitors the same mix, right? But adding a little bit of delay to not, 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 um, slapback delay, but actual delay to the first signal that comes out of, of, uh, one of the monitors 
to give it some some space on stage and perhaps even doing that in my ears uh, just to kind of open up the sound and, and maybe create some of that space so that um, so that we can hear some more separation. It's um, I got to experiment with it. I, it might be a totally flawed theory, but uh, but, you know, these are the things you think you're about. actually you're actually saying you're thinking that actually sound in an environment where you're sitting amongst 5000 people was scaled down to 50 people and 100 people that, that the model is the same. Well, I'm actually not even thinking about it for the crowd. I'm thinking about it for monitors on stage. Um, the the right amount of delay, and it's we're not. I'm not talking very much. I mean, we're talking, you know, like probably single or very low double digits in terms of milliseconds uh, on the delay. But just something to to offset one speaker from another. I, I feel like mm. it might create that that feeling of, of depth that you get. And uh, and make it easier to hear kind of the separation in the in the overall stage wash. I, I mean, it's not certainly it's not the I don't think it's going to be like the the magic bullet. I, I think the magic bullet is learning uh, where each instrument sits in the in the EQ range and sort of taking it, it out of of all the rest of the places and finding a pocket for everything so that you don't have things just like stepping all over each other. But um but I feel like, you know, like this delay could be some of the secret sauce on top of that. I don't know. All right. I, I, I'd love to. I mean, Give I'm going to try. I'm going to try it anyway, because, you know, why not? I have the ability to do it um, and, and we can easily do it. But uh, but I'd love to hear, you know, from from people that actually know what they're doing, as opposed to just some crazy guy that had an idea while he was standing on the beach. So um, so feedback at giggabpodcast.com or comment on our Facebook group. But Yeah. Hey, before we move on, um, I was thinking about you and, and, you know, going to these fish and there's a lot of, you know, Dave Matthews has started doing this type of thing where, you know, he does uh, him and Tim do acoustic shows. They're doing the one on the, on the and, same you know, beach. The, yeah. Where I there just you go. Was. So this kind of the destination rock and roll vacations, it seems to be a thing. Steve is going to um, another big thing has been these cruise ships that are kind of like mm-hmm. these music themed cruise ships. A lot of bands with good uh, with good followings are just. I don't know whether they're renting out the cruise ship or some inventive promoter is putting these things together. Psychotis and my, uh, who I sing with uh, in Acoustic Madness, he's going on this thing called the seventies rock and romance cruise. And it's like, you know, all kind of seventies AM gold, little river band, America, Christopher cross, ambrosia. And, uh, you know, there's like 12 bands or something going on this. Actually to me, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, a, that type of thing, you, you probably have some social interaction with the band different than you would. Are the do the fish guys hang out with the audience in any way when they when they do these destination things? So not um, n- not these days, uh, and certainly not in Mexico. I, I think they were all there with their families, uh, which I think is great for them. But um, at, when they've done festivals, especially as you sort of rewind a number of years. Yeah, they they would they would occasionally, you know, grab one of them or two of them would grab a golf cart or whatever and and drive around amongst the uh, amongst the fans and and say hello and that sort of thing. Um, And I've seen that at their at their at the festivals that we've gone to in the last whatever, you know, six or seven years. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of part of uh, the evolving as bands are making so much more the predominance of their money from live. Yeah. You know, the, the the connection, whether it's by, you know, I, I think most of the social media efforts have been pretty lame. You know, you get a tweet from a guy in a band, that type of stuff. That sure. I, that doesn't feel like really engagement. It's not but, all that personal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. 
you know, but I, I think, um, you know, these types of things have been devised as, as new revenue streams for big bands. Uh, they're inventive ways to do it. And, uh, you know, a, especially for the bands that are, you know, like nostalgia acts, it's, it's, it's a large part about connecting with their audiences and nurturing those audiences so they can maintain the revenue stream. Right. 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 Yeah. I know. Um, so a buddy of mine just did the uh, cruise to the edge uh, last fall, I guess it was. Maybe it was earlier than that, but uh, maybe it was over the summer. But it's a bunch of prog rock bands. It, it, obviously, the well, maybe not obviously, but the, the the sort of the cornerstone of it is yes. And then but there's bands like Nectar and, uh, you, you know, all, all of these sort of prog bands that only prog fans uh, had probably heard of. And uh and he said he loved it because you could like hang out in the in the cruise ship bar or whatever and and run into you know some of these guys that that are legends perhaps to to more people than are on the ship but sometimes perhaps only to the people on the ship but that's okay you know yeah and and I know uh, when we saw it, Little Feet back in the fall they did like a four show run that they called their warm up for uh, maybe it was it was actually it was only a month ago right December uh, that they called as a warm up for their uh, they used to do a cruise. Now they just do an uh, island kind of beach destination vacation in Jamaica. And uh, yeah, yeah. And and I know uh, from people that have attended that that it's the same kind of thing. You know, they, they play their gigs or whatever, and then they mix it up. And you know, Fred and Paul do a like a little duo thing late night in a club, but you can just hang out with them. And and uh, they're kind of a fan fest type of environment. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know. Um, uh, our buddy Dave Brunyak in Pink Talking Fish is uh, they they are doing I think it's maybe tomorrow it starts is the Rock Legends Five Cruise believe it or not so mm-hmm. th- they're they're the last band on the list but um, but you know it's uh, Pat Benatar and Neil Geraldo and Ario Speedwagon and Credence and Thin Lizzy Don Don Felder you, you know like the, sounds like fun yeah and f- what a great gig for these guys to do too right I mean they get to play with some. Uh, you know, or, or at least share the share the ship with some some great people. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's cool. All right. What, one other thing so, that, that I noticed yep. while while we were or while I was seeing shows at this at this um, at this Sting show that I saw, I I don't think the band had played for a couple of weeks, and I don't think they were playing for a couple of more weeks. I think this was sort of a one off show that uh, that somebody at at Harmon slash JBL was able to convince Sting and the band to do, and I'm sure paid them well for it as well. Um, but it, one of my, Vinny Kaliuta is one of my favorite drummers uh, and he's been playing with Sting forever. He played with Zappa before that. And uh, they came out, they started with message in a bottle. They played only about an hour, but it was mostly old police tunes. And even in the first song, I saw Vinny catch a catch a rim with his drumstick and, you know, flubbed a little fill or whatever. I mean, he kept the time. The time was fine. He was a pro about it. If you weren't a drummer, even if you were and you weren't like watching at that moment, you might not have noticed. Right. But um, but here's this guy who, in my mind, you know, can do no wrong. And I've, I've rarely ever seen him do wrong. And yet. Every time he hits the stage, or at least that time he hit the stage. He was going for it and pushing beyond whatever his capability at the moment was. And and it was just inspiring to see, like, oh, you know what, man? That's cool. I mean, he was playing a fill that was difficult, you know, that for sure. But um, but it was good to see that he was just, like, playing. And uh, and that's one of the things I like about 
live music. And not every musician is willing to take that chance, but, but the bands that, that I like tend to be. And, uh, and it was nice to see, you know, and it wasn't the only time. I mean, he, he made a couple of flubs and Sting even caught him once and kind of looked back and Vinny just shrugged and kept playing. It was like, oh, well, you know. It's a very human thing. It's I, a human I, thing. Yeah. 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 Um, Billy Joel was on uh, Colbert this week and uh, Colbert asked him to play Miami 2017. You know, the light, lights go down on Broadway. And um, he asked him while he's in the chair and, and, and it, it, Billy's reaction was, he looked genuinely surprised. And I would assume all this stuff is talked about in advance. He looked genuinely surprised. He said, yeah, sure. And so they go to commercial. He comes back and, and he inches a song. And sure enough, in the piano intro that Billy is playing by himself, there is a very noticeable flub. Hmm. Billy, Billy makes a face, you know, like, yeah. Oops. right. <laughs> but, they, but, but they continue on. And again, you know, I, I have a great friend who um, he's one of the finest players I know. And he's like, Nobody died. It's kind of his catchphrase. You know, a flub is, um, you know, it's not what you aim for. Of course How not. you handle it says almost as much about you as a musician as making the flub, right? Yep. I know, and, you know, there's a lot of people who take their performance of music, in, you know, dead very seriously, understandably. Sure. However, you know, there you can you can project a little bit that – the charm of live music, you know, the, the allure of, of live music is the immediacy of the moment and what happens, you know, in, in, in a moment and how a musician deals with this. It's amusing to the audience if handled well. It's um, informative to other musicians in the audience if handled well. You know, train wrecks are when things aren't handled well, generally. Usually that's that's true. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on your de- definition of a train wreck, but yeah, but yeah that's right. Yeah. In fact, um, night three of, of fish, the, the final night fish takes the stage and, uh, their bass player starts up the groove for boogie on reggae woman, right? Stevie wonder tune fish plays it. I've seen him play it a bunch of times. Um, evidently I didn't realize it at the time, but evidently this is the first time they've opened, opened a show with it, but whatever they, you know, they, they play it all the time and they get the groove going, the band's moving along and, Trey goes up to the mic and it was, so I couldn't tell what happened. I thought maybe his mic wasn't on yet. And I think it's like, oh, that's weird. And so he's kind of standing there and he kind of looks up at the drummer and he's kind of looking out at the crowd. And finally he goes back up to the mic and he says, and again, the band's still just grooving on that first chord, you know? Uh-huh. And he says, uh, can somebody sing me the first line of the that's song? Funny. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So the keyboard player gave him the gave him the first line and and he sort of flubbed the second line and then finally he you know got his bearings and and they were off to the races. But um but yeah, it's like these things happen. <laughs> what you know, a great, this is, great start this, to a show. <laughs> this is kind of an interesting bridge to something I wanted to talk about today, which is about um rock and roll. Yeah is the music of the people, right? It, you know, it is, it is the great equalizer in its, in its cultural value in its, in what it offers musicians, right? So yeah. there have been great rock and roll musicians through the years who are not necessarily virtuosos at their instrument yet. They're incredibly successful. And I was thinking about, um, I haven't talked about Springsteen in many weeks on the show, but I believe I may have brought his name up in, in some prior episodes. I'm not sure you can you just can once check before me on I checked the yeah. archives. It's just the one time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, he has his autobiography out, which was to me an incredibly fascinating read. I think it would be fascinating for almost anyone. If the concept that this 
very real person from very, uh, you know, uh, origins that many people can identify with rose to such amazing heights. And what is the guy about? How do you do that? You know, you know, it's I think about the Stones and the Beatles and they kind of transcended from kids to kind of this, you know, royalty at a very young age and kind of lived in this rock star, you know, vibe for quite a while where Springsteen is a little bit different in his path up and the bar bands and how long he played in bar bands and, uh, you know, the the path up to the level of success. I mean, he, a lot of really interesting things. He was like, I didn't I didn't have a checkbook until I was in my 30s. You know, wow. I didn't have a driver's license until I was in my 30s. I didn't know anything about cash. Everything in my life was cash until I was in my 30s. But, but among many things that are interesting in the book, he talks very frankly about his talent. And he talks about his voice. And the quote is is awesome. He, he's kind of talking about, you know, some songs and performance. And he says, oh, and the thing about my voice, I don't have much of one. <laughs> Which, you know, just to hear uh, someone who's achieved so much, who's, who's affected so much, yeah. you know, inspires so much. And, you know, I think people have a wide variety of opinions about his voice. Some people will think it's it's great because it is a rock and roll voice. Some people will think it's not great because it's it's you know it's, it's not quite technically raw. great, right? Yeah, and exactly. That's what he says. He goes yeah. from a ten, from a tonality standpoint, and occasionally from a pitch standpoint, I'm not perfect all the time. But the point that he makes that I think is so useful is that he says I learned at a very young age how to inhabit my songs, and this is what I'm saying is like the great common denominator of rock and roll there is a chance for people of all levels of talent if they can communicate truth to literally live in their songs and tell a story you don't have to be you know choose who you want you know aretha franklin or you know pick your favorite your seal you know people who are blessed with mechanically superior tonal voices pitch you know, voices, rock and roll offers a chance for people to tell a story if they can inhabit their song. Now, it's not saying it's not like pitch can be bad. You can't sing flat all the time. No, He's, no. But but rock and roll is a little bit more forgiving than other styles of music. If you can communicate an emotion, which I think is a very, very powerful thing for the. And I would guess many of our listeners, you know, you're you're that kind of semi-professional reasonably gifted, you know, can, can hold a tune would probably be the common denominator thing. But the question is to be successful, can you inhabit your songs? And this is why when I go see, you know, there's some types of, of music that's really hard for a semi-professional to emote. A, a, A good example, you know, journey would be an example, right? I think sting would be an example. Some of these kind of like very like, theatrical styles of songs um emoting the truth of those for for mere mortals i think that's a challenge to pull that stuff off i mean you know queen right how do you sing how do you sing queen queen is harder than journey or sting at least for for this hack singer yeah well not but not only harder on a technical basis right you know freddie mercury is a vibe yes of, of his own truth unto himself right it's very hard to inhabit that same truth. I would say so, I would put uh, John Anderson of yes in that category. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, like even if you could hit those notes and trust me, you probably can't. But even if you could, 
Could you deliver them the way that guy the, the, the term inhabit is absolutely the right one to use, especially for him, where, you know, he he emotes and and just oozes something that's far beyond the lyrics or the, the melody he's singing. It's uh, there's a layer of truth and believability. But I, you know, to, to go back to your comment, you said, you know, can you can you be successful by by inhabiting your songs and emoting the truth? I would actually turn that around and say, even if you are one of the, you know, Aretha Franklin or Seal or Frank Sinatra or whoever, you know, you want to be or, or you want to put up on a pedestal with a with a classically stellar voice. And there are plenty could you be successful? Could they have been successful without inhabiting those songs and emoting the truth? Because all the people you mentioned, even though they had great voices, that wasn't the only thing. They still inhabited their songs. Yeah, and you actually, have to. You have absolutely. To. And Bruce actually says there, the lounges of America are full of people with technically perfect voices. Yes. Who are not emitting believability, right? Right. So, right. you know, one of the things that I, I would imagine is the secret sauce about taking you to the next level is telling or telling a, you know, a wonderful story. And, you know, Dylan would be a great example to me. There's, you know, obviously I don't think very many people would say Dylan's voice is going to, is going to you know, wake everybody up. Right. However, he tells his stories in, you know, and they are his stories in a very um, unique and profound way that to me works. I mean, my, yeah. you know, my wife, my wife, if I play her a Dylan song covered by somebody else, she goes, Oh, that's an incredible song. Yep. If I play it by Dylan, she goes, why does he have to sing his own song? Yeah. Well, yeah but could, I'll couldn't say, he just have written it for somebody else? I, I but, am actually in that camp. I, I have, there is nothing about Bob Dylan singing his own songs that resonates with me. See, I find it's, it's, it's the storyteller telling his story. No, I, and I get that. And that's probably why, I, and I actually have, I, I like Springsteen a whole lot more than I like Dylan. Um, but to be fair, just in case anybody thinks I'm, I'm, I'm skipping something here, I absolutely respect not only what Dylan has done for his own career, but the role that he played in getting rock and roll to where it is here. And I feel the same about Lou Reed. Um, it's just personal preference. It doesn't resonate with me when either of those guys delivers their song. Springsteen, I have a little bit more of a, a resonance to, but I am not someone clearly. I'm not someone for whom, uh, you know, Americana or, or, or roots rock really resonates. I, I, I don't care as much about the story being told. Yeah. And to me, yeah. that is, that's what transcends music sure. for me. That Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I totally get it. I, I can understand, uh, you know, I might not understand how to connect with you on different political <laughs> opinions, <laughs> but when it comes to music, I can totally understand whatever it is that turns you on about, about music. Good for you right. that you have it. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually find meaning in Bob Dylan singing tangled up in blue or, you know, you know, pick yeah. great meaning in it. And, you know, that's probably, and my point to all this was, you know, for those of us who uh, aspire to sing and perform, you know, the elements, you know, you have a certain amount of natural talent. You have a decent ear. You have an understanding of tone. I have shared that I've, I've worked really hard to fix a lot of bad habits with regards to breathing in order to be able to in order to be able to technically deliver what I have to do. But I would say that there is a a promise that rock and roll makes to anyone who aspires is that. The ability to um, to emote is 
is a peer tool with many other parts of being successful. Yep. You know what it comes down to, don't you? Always be performing. <laughs> Seriously, right? I mean, that's part of it. Is you print can, the t-shirts? Them, that's it. That's it. We got it. We got to do t-shirts. Oh, that's a great idea. Let us know. Would you buy a t-shirt? A gig gab t-shirt? We'll put our our crazy logo on it and say "Always be performing." I think that'd be great. That'd Boom. be fun. All right. All right. <laughs> we're on the same page. That's good. Point. Yes, we're moving ahead. Yep. So we we talked about this last week. We've actually had some of you participating uh, in this on our Facebook group thus far, but. Um, but I think it's time to share. We called it the Desert Island Discs. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that's the right term that I want to use, at least for my list. This would be more the, the disc that, that really influenced me as a, a person, musician, whatever you want. These are the things. Uh, and I, and I, I figured we'd share our list finally today, Paul. Let's go. We'll do. We'll bounce back and forth. We'll bounce back and forth. Up. All right. Um, for me. The the first disc, and I'm starting with the one that that probably uh, is the earliest disc that I ever really dug into and and meant a lot to me, is Weather Reports 8:30, which was a live album that they did on their tour after putting out Heavy Weather, which was the album that had Birdland on it and Teen Town and and all of those great tunes. Black Market, I think Black Market was on that, um, but it's a great live album. And, uh, and it, it sounds good, but you just hear this like raw performance of this band that's hungry and proving themselves and competing with each other, but still making it like work musically. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a killer, killer album. And, uh, and of course, Weather Report was the, the first real concert I ever saw when I was like, I don't know, I saw that band. So I, I must've been like nine or eight or something. But uh, my dad took me to the Beacon Theater. Actually, my dad and his step and my stepmom, his wife, took me to the Beacon Theater in New York. Mm. So, uh, so Weather Report eight thirty, killer live. If you haven't heard it, go find it, listen to it. It'll blow you away, or at least it blows me away. So you get to hear what blows me away. (laughs) So my first, yeah, my first choice, not even not even a question, would be Born to Run. Mm. And uh, you know, I the reason Born to Run. And I think about it a lot. I can still listen to Born to Run cover to cover. I, I never get tired of that album. And I think some of it is because when you're 16 years old and someone is singing to you that anything is possible, that you can go out and, and challenge the world and, you know, fight authority. You know, this is a very powerful message. The cinematic visions these things again i can i can still see myself 16 headphones on lights turned off in my room you know just letting the music just take me away so you know i think it's it is a perfect album in that it starts with this amazing invitation and thunder road takes you on this joyous ride through 10th avenue freeze out um you know born to run the title track interestingly enough is in the middle of the album you know starts the second side and uh um it's just amazing. You know, the, these songs, the lyrics, the, the promise, the, the, the movies that play in your mind while you, while you listen to it, you know, the playing is fantastic. The sound of it is so interesting to me. Uh, the, the, you know, obviously lyrically it's incredible. It is rock and roll to me. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's everything that I wanted to feel at 16 and it's everything I want to feel at 54. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. All right. So uh, number two on my list is is 
uh, Rush's Exit Stage Left, also a live album. And you're going to notice a trend here that most of, of what I list and perhaps all of what I list are, are live albums. I love that. Yeah, I, it, it, I, I kind of knew it as I started building the list, but it wasn't an intentional. I certainly didn't intend to exclude studio albums, but it's the live albums that, that always have resonated with me. But it makes sense as a musician. You're, how do they actually perform this thing? Right. 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 Well, I, and, I love it. And now here's the interesting thing is that Exit Stage Left is the least live of Rush's live albums. Uh, it was the second one they did. The first was All the World's a Stage, which was totally raw and live. In fact, during Temples of Syrinx, you can hear uh, the snares break off of the bottom of, of Peart's snare drum. So it turns into a timbali for a little while or, a, you know, mm. just a high pitched Tom for a little while. Uh, and then they swap it out. But um, so for exit stage left, they overdid the studio correction. So it's according to the way they tell the story, it's uh, it's probably half studio, half live, but it still feels like a live album. And, and you've got that sort of energy of, of the crowd and, uh, it just it was it was the album that that really kind of got me into Rush uh, as a as a budding drummer and young teenager. And so it will. Oh, and I, I went to sleep many a night pl- with that album playing on my little Radio Shack pillow speaker underneath my uh, underneath my pillow. And yeah. and and it's if I'm going to play along to some album, it, that's one that I'll pick and, and play along to. And it obviously always challenges me and I, I never quite get it right. But um but it's got uh, it's got some great tunes and some great versions. The version of Red Barchetta that's on there is is just killer, and um, and they were they were they were in great form at that point. So um, so if I if I have to pick a Rush album and I don't have to, but I want to, uh, Exit Stage Left is likely. There there are some studio albums by Rush that that mean a lot to me too, and and those sort of change these days. Believe it or not, it's Grace Under Pressure just because there's some really well crafted songs on that album. But like kid gloves and between the wheels, but um, but in terms of kind of overall uh, representativeness of of what what started me down the path of of rush, I would say exit stage left is the one. So yeah, there you go. What Very you? cool. All right, my uh, next album would be the first Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. Oh, uh, yeah. So you know, different than Born to Run, Tom Petty was still the master. You know, this is what, 1976, you know, three minute songs, right? Yeah. Get in, get out, do what you need to do. But there's always been something about Petty. And a lot of it is about Mike Campbell's playing. You know, he is he's my guitar hero in terms of taste and tone. Um, he, you know, he he just really dazzles me. But Petty's songs, catchy. You know, the, the sound of the band, if I could play in any band in my fantasy, I would want to be in the Heartbreakers. I mean, mm. just the way that band sounds, every single album, every single live show is just that moves me tremendously, even more than Springsteen. If I could play in a band, I'd want to play in, in the Heartbreakers. But, um, you know, obviously, American Girl was the first hit, but it was, you know, the very interesting sound of Hometown Blues. Um, I love Stranger in the Night was cool. Fooled Again. Mystery Man might be my favorite on that album just because it's such a it's you know, it's that we obviously are going to nod our head to country music in a very interesting rock and roll way. So I just love that first Tom Petty record. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can I can totally get that. It took me a long time to to go from for some reason, absolutely hating Tom Petty to absolutely loving him. Um, you hated Tom Petty? I did. I don't know why. 
I, 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 I've heard more people give a stronger objection to Springsteen because, you know, you kind of have to take a stance with Springsteen because, you know, he's singing about social issues and, you know, some people don't like that type of stuff. Sure. I've never heard anybody say they hated Tom Petty ever. Yeah, I I, I have. And I mean, I, there are many, many people that would corroborate this when I was in um, in Go Figure, which is the band I was in in college. Uh, and we did yeah, we did fairly well. But um, I, for some reason, I just hated Tom Petty. And we didn't play any Petty songs. I mean, we weren't even uh, you know, we were playing rock and roll. So in that sense, we were in the same world as as Tom Petty. But but our style of music was far closer to like Red Hot Chili Peppers meets like the Beatles than it was, um, you know, uh, anything Tom Petty did. But I, yeah, I don't know why I, I had this uh, very active aversion to him. And then and then as as has happened many times for me. You know, I got into other bands where we wound up playing some Tom Petty songs. And so I had to kind of get deeper into the music. And it was like, wait a minute. I, 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 this is awesome. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next on my list is um, no great surprise. Another live album stings bring on the night. Uh, again, and of all the live albums I've listed, I think this is the one that I like as much for the music and the playing, especially, uh, but for the sound, it just, I, 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 it, it's got such a warm sound. It like changes the temperature of my home when I play this record. And, um, and, and, you know, he's got Kenny Kirkland playing keys on it. And that, that version of, of bring on the night into when the world is come, uh, when the world is coming down, uh, what, uh, I mean, just what a stellar piece of music that is. And again, you know, all performed live, he had a killer band. Sting was actually playing guitar on that tour. He had uh, Daryl Jones playing bass and Omar Hakim on the drums and, um, and Branford Marsalis on the mm -hmm. uh, uh, playing saxophone. And, and then obviously Kenny Kirkland. And he had, he had a couple of backup singers whose names I don't remember, but if you go watch the movie about the kind of, not really the making of the album, but the making of that tour, that's a really interesting thing where those girls are teaching Sting how to sing harmonies. Uh, that in one moment when it's a very cool video. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. Uh, but, but I, I, I did, I, I probably went, you know, 10 years uh, listening to the album religiously before ever even knowing that the movie existed. But, um, yeah, I just, I love that record. Oh, it sounds so good. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Great playing. My, my number three is a, a little bit of a, 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 a wing here. Um, there's a band in New Jersey called Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes comes yeah. from the same musical community. I don't know how well known Southside is outside of the East Coast. I know he does well up and down the East Coast. He hasn't been to California in about 20 years. I know that he does a, a European tour every once in a while. But this band is um, this is the essence of a bar band to me. I mean, they're gritty. They have these horns that take no prisoners that, you know, that, that just have this real in your face, punchy horn lines. And then the songs in this, most of them are written by either Bruce or, or, or little Steven. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so little Steven actually, I think formed that band um, and, you know, led it in its early days. But um, I, I think Southside Johnny is, is the greatest blue eyed soul voice. You know, it's just gritty and just really talks to me. And, you know, the band again, it, it's just, I hear them and I think about sweaty summer nights in a bar and uh, that's a good thing to me. And, yeah. uh, you know, the music is just 
exciting. And, you know, again, that horn section just punches things. The reason I formed the House Rockers was because I wanted to be Southside Johnny and the Osprey Jukes. Oh. And, and uh, you know, that's still a sound that just moves me. And I think every song on that album is just is really, really good. Huh. You know, I, I know I've heard bits and pieces of that, but I don't think I've sat down and listened to um Listen to all of it. So I, I'm actually taking notes on all of this. And and now I have my listening for the, the next week because I get to not only listen to the stuff that I love uh, again and, and revisit some of these, but I get to listen to all of your stuff, too. So oh, cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll share the favor. There you go. There you go. All right. Um, my number four is uh, I'm going to stick with the theme of, of live albums and go with Fish's Alive One. Which uh, which came out in uh, in 1995. It was their first official live release, which seems really odd for a band that, uh, you know, I, I it was certainly not the first live recording of Fish that I had heard. They, you know, have a had a, a and still have, I guess, a huge taper community. So that it was, you know, when I first started getting into Fish in the early 90s, there was, you know, trading of tapes and mailing of blanks and postage and all of that stuff around the world. But um but then then they released this and I was actually I think I was at two of the the shows. It wasn't just one show where all these tracks were recorded. They each came from from different concerts. But um, but I think I was at a couple of the shows where some of them were recorded. But uh, but again, it's it's a it's a great album. It's I, I've given it to people who ask me, you know, what's the best album to get into fish? And and this one certainly is is a good entry point. All of this, all of these versions of these songs are sort of very uh, climactic, if you will. And and so you 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 get you would never experience quite this level of peak uh, maintained throughout an entire concert. But um, but they, the the versions are all good. The the playing on it is great. The, you can hear the fun that the band's having at times. And uh, so it's it's a it's still an album that I go to, but Rift, which is their sort of quasi concept album uh, that they did in 1994, I guess would, would, would the studio album would be my very close second if uh, if only picking one from a band, but a live mm. one will, a live one will be my my official pick. So cool. Yep. All right, my next album, Frampton Comes Alive. Yeah. So, you know, you got to remember this is 1976. I'm 14 years old. This would be my first Guitar God album. So when I first started playing guitar, it, you know, it was a lot more strummy. And, uh, you know, I was not a rocker at 12 years old. But by 14, um, you know, I'd had an electric guitar for a while. Yep. This was the first album where guitar parts popped at me. I mean, I think the hit, you know, Show Me The Way or, you know, um, was probably the first hit for that one. But, you know, the guitar players, that that solo and and Do You Feel Like We Do yeah. really got, you know, that just got in my head. And there's great rock songs on there, you know, Hold Tight, Something's Happening. Um, but that was the first Guitar God album that got me as a guitar player, you know, trying to cop riffs and, you know, digging deep into it. The tone wasn't fantastic. You know, how he kind of put it, put it through that Leslie was kind of an unattainable thing for a, you know, a guy with, <laughs> yeah. with a with a very cheap guitar and a very cheap amp and, and a sometime working wire between the two, but just the concept that a guitar could sound, you know, big like that just really got to me and inspired by guitar playing still to this day. 
you know, those are brilliant solos. I mean, he he's a he's a world class player, obviously. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think you got some bad career advice with I'm in you and and, and <laughs> went went the pop pop guy route that didn't work out well for him. And to this day, I mean, I think it's about his guitar chops. That is what he's known for. And, you know, Humble Pie, you know, and, and you know, he he is a world class guitar player. And this album, you know, just lit my fire to go and, you know, try and be a better guitar player. First one that ever did that to me. Mm, yeah. And that, that that's important, I, I think, for any musician to sort of acknowledge. And I'll rewind back to Rush's exit stage left as the album that said, OK, look, you know, look at what this guy's doing on the drums. Now, now you have a bar, you know, go. Yep. <laughs> yep. And keep working at it because you'll never get there, but it's OK. Just keep working at it. Yep. Cool. Yep. All right. So for my final pick, uh, if we're limiting this to five and, and it's always good to have limits, uh, would be Miles Davis's a tribute to Jack Johnson. Now, this is not necessarily a live album. I believe it was all recorded live, but then pieced together. And, and there's there's the album, which really was just two sides of an LP, one called Right Off and the other called Yesternow. But but um, and there and it's just one track uh, on either side of the uh, of the LP. Of course, now you get it as a, a you know as a digital download, or if you want to buy a CD, you can. But um, each track is not just one take of anything. It's it's all of this stuff pieced together. It was built to be the soundtrack for a, a movie that never happened. I don't think. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty certain the movie never happened. But. Um, it was a, it re, I mean, some really, really cool stuff happened on this. I mean, it was Miles obviously playing, uh, playing trumpet, John McLaughlin on guitar, Herbie Hancock on the organ, Billy Cobham, Billy Cobham on the drums, and uh, uh, a few different bass players. Um, I think he had Dave Holland for one tune and, and Michael Henderson for for the rest. But there's there's one section in one of the tunes where. Uh, you know, he asked John McLaughlin to play the evolution of a guitar player. So he starts with this sort of, you know, out of tune and, and misfretted E chord and, and then just sort of builds while, while the band's got this groove going. And, uh, and if you like the album, then they have the Jack Johnson sessions, which was a box set of like, I don't know, 14 discs or something that has all of the stuff they recorded, um, you know, just, you know, released and off you go. But really, really stellar playing and, and just some great, great stuff. And if you want to tie in, um, I believe it's before the version of Wilson on Fish's Alive One, you will hear uh, one of the tracks of, of, uh, of I think it's Yesternow, playing as the, as the house music, and then they cut it off, and it was from Madison Square Garden. I remember being there that night, so... Um, so it all ties together, but yeah, really, really fantastic album. I highly recommend it for anybody. Even if you don't like jazz, this is, this is, this is miles in his very, you know, sort of morphing fusion-y days. So you're, I, I don't even know what kind of music to call. I guess fusion's the right thing, but, uh, but it could be anything. So, cool. yeah. All right. My last album, I had to get a Ryan Adams album in there. And then there were a couple that I could cho choose from, but I chose ashes and fire only because almost Cover to cover, the songs work for me. You know, I, as I've said, I love storytellers, and Ryan Adams, I think, is the best storyteller we have today. The guy, the guy, literally craps great songs. I mean, he's so prolific, and he just puts out so much in, so much great music. He's a he's a average guitar player, except for in these solo formats. 
he um, is very interesting rhythmically, and he really kind of <clears throat> accompanies himself. Uh, he's not just strumming a guitar like you might hear on a Johnny Cash album or, or you know, some other, you know, kind of like folk sure. type thing. He actually is very um, purposeful in what he does with his guitar playing. And, you know, he uses occasionally uses some open tunings. They're basically very simple songs, but he tells these wonderful moody stories that really that really um, transcend, you know, they take me different places. And that's the stuff I can listen to over and over and over again. I'm a huge Ryan Adams fan. Um, like I said, it was hard to pick one album. Ashes and Fire is a fantastic song. Um, Dirty Rain is a great song. Uh, uh, Invisible Riverside. There's many songs in this album that I just never get tired of listening to. And it fits my need. So, you know, maybe I could say Ryan Adams is kind of my Bob Dylan mm. now. You know, well, you picked a. I mean, I, thank you, by the way, for being the only one uh, to, to picking the one album that comes from this century, right? I mean, the uh, rest of the the rest of this stuff is like you know old guy music. So yeah. um, that that's great, man. Yeah, yeah. So good stuff. All all ten of these, you know. I, I say we go go find an island and, and uh, plug in and, and just let these things ring. Yeah, nice and loud. if I was stuck on an island, I'd be I'd actually be great with all ten of these and any of them at any time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's uh, it, that's great stuff. So uh, you have already started sharing yours, but please do visit our Facebook group. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to this very post in the Facebook group uh, about uh, where everybody's been sharing their stuff. But, uh, it, you know, our Facebook group in general is at uh, giggabpodcast.com slash Facebook. We would love to see you over there. And uh, that's all I got for this week, Paul. Fun stuff, Dave. Fun stuff indeed. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we love doing this and we love it when you tell us what you like, what you don't like. Come visit us. Giggapodcast.com slash Facebook. Yeah, we got to get those going. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> always be performing, folks. 